Welcome to IP Frequently. IP Frequently is brought to you by Dominion Harbor Enterprises and is sponsored by IPedia. IPedia, innovation clarity that provides real, actionable patent intelligence. Join our hosts, David Pridham and Brad Sheaf, advancing the issues of intellectual property. Hello and welcome to another episode of IP Frequently. I'm here as I always am with my good friend, business partner, and current devourer of pizza, David Michael Pridham. We're excited, somewhat potentially today, to have a journalist on the podcast, a print journalist who goes by the name of Sky Graham. Very excited, very excited. Let's get right to it, Brad. And we're, we're very excited to have Sky Graham with us here on IP Frequently. Scott is an IP journalist with over 20 years of experience in this field, and uh, you can find him on ALM. You can also find him in the recorder. And Scott, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks very much. Um, uh, I, I do work with ALM Media. I publish uh, articles uh, on the various outlets, Law.com, uh, Texas Lawyer, The Recorder, National Law Journal. I've been uh, writing about um, legal issues for uh, more than 20 years. I've been focusing on intellectual property just for the last four or five, so I'm um, still learning a lot about the field. and. Um, and I guess that's the main thing to know. And I, I write a, a newsletter uh, twice a week that you can find on law.com called Skilled in the Art. All right. Well, it's a catchy title, if nothing else. And well, what are some of the um, the articles that you've most we recently about, We thought about going with Graham Factors, but we decided uh, Skilled in the Art. Um, I, I tell you what, those well, uh, are two solid choices, Scott. Two very solid choices. <laughs> Um, what have I written about recently? Um, I, I feel like um, every week there's a new development on the Berkheimer uh, Section 101 front. Um, uh, I haven't written about it lately, but uh, there's, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people are waiting for the oil state decision and talking about it and trying to anticipate what's going to happen there. Um, we had the Oracle versus Google decision last week, so I uh, wrote an article about that and interviewed uh, the lawyer who had the, the winning argument in the Federal Circuit. You said that you had just you know, done about five years worth of, of IP journalism. Um, what particularly attracted you to, to do an IP and why the particular topics you've picked to write about? Well, uh, I have always covered appellate law. And um, the uh, leaders of our company felt that uh, something that was really missing from our mix was coverage of the federal circuit. Um, so that's kind of been my We like to call, talk, like to call that the Kafka, by the way. So if we could refer to it from this point forward <laughs> as Kafka. That way we could track it. Yeah, okay. he's the only one on earth that calls it that, but he enjoys it. So um, if you could join that's us with that, try to spread that around, that would be, uh, be helpful from our perspective. Kafka. Kafka. C-A-F-C, pronounced Kafka. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, I think that's very appropriate given given how stuck they are, you know, between the Supreme Court and the rest of the patent world. That's not a bad. So are you potentially saying they may need a metamorphosis? No, I think it's more like they're more like trapped, but I'm not remembering all. 
Well, I, it's interesting that you would say that. We've advocated on this podcast, primarily my good friend and confidant here, David, that the CAFC's time may have come and gone. You have a particular opinion on, you say they're trapped between the district courts. Obviously, they have to account also for the other appellate courts and the Supreme Court. You know, in your in your experience with appellate law, how do you see them? So you're saying they're torn between two lovers, or feeling like, feeling a, like fool. a fool, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, Loving exactly. both of them is breaking every rule. Something, <laughs> something very much along those lines. Great song, by the way. I think, you know, I think life was probably a lot easier for them when the Supreme Court was deciding one or two patent cases a year. When they decide six a year and, you know, these opinions where they kind of say, okay, you're doing it wrong, Federal Circuit, uh, start all over again. Uh, here's a couple of broad hints. Now go figure it out. Uh, I, I think that, that that puts them in a tough place, I think. So do you, do you think it's worth them continuing in their existence, at least as the appellate level for patent issues, or would we be better off going back to just going through the regular circuits? Mm, I, I, I don't know. I, I think the federal circuit system works right. Um, I, you know, the, there was, there have been, there has been quite a bit of turnover on the court. A lot of new judges over the last uh, eight years. Um, so I, I think they ought to be given a little bit more time to see how that works out. Maybe they should track what I, they I, do I with the PTAB and do and, and try to be more like the PTAB. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I think when you've got a hundred or however many judges, it is that has a whole different level of difficulty. But I don't think there's anything structurally wrong with the the federal circuit. I think there's just disagreement between them and the Supreme Court, and, and I think they ought to. They just need to figure out better ways to get on the same page. It seems to me that there are a couple of things. One is that there's no one, there aren't many people. I mean, who who has passed the patent bar on the, in the, there's one, and one judge is actually a patent <clears throat> lawyer Judge on the federal circuit. Judge Newman, we talked about that yeah. last night. I, I think that's one thing. And then two, rudderless leadership, right? Not having someone that can build consensus uh, like Judge Michelle was able to do. Um, seems to me those are the two biggest problems with the with the um, Kafka. Well, yeah, but I think um, when they have consensus, that almost gets them into more trouble because when, you know when they come together and have an unbanked decision and say, okay, you know, yeah, we agree nine to three, this should be the rule. That seems to get the Supreme Court's attention, and and then the Supreme Court says, no, 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 start over. Um, but um, but it seems to me that's the glory of our system, right? You get slapped down by the Supreme Court, you start over, you do it again, and you build consensus. To you. Like on 101, what's happening is really scandalous, right? I mean, you can, it's hard to extrapolate from what the Supreme Court did on 101 and, and get to the point where we're at where there's no clear standard set by the federal circuit on even when the determination can be made, right? Um, and you've got district courts using 101 Rule 12 motion challenges to purge their dockets because there's no 
leadership and, and what I think should happen. I think what would have happened if judge Michelle were in charge <clears throat> is there would have been an attempt to interpret the, the Supreme court's decision um, and you know, potentially send something back up to the um, back up to the Supreme court, but it, at least set a standard that courts can shoot at and courts can apply. And I think that's, that's a glaring example of where that vacuum in leadership at the federal circuit level has, um, uh, as as appeared, and, and what you end up with are uh, folks who are more than happy to jump into that uh, uh, that uh, leadership position, like Michelle Lee, when she was running the patent office, and, and how she put together the PTAB panels, how she issued guidance on 101 post Alice, and so th those are the type of ramifications of rudderless um, federal circuit or Kafka leadership. At least that's how I view it. What do you think? Uh I think that each time the Supreme Court has weighed in on on Section 101, it's just made it more murky, right? I mean, do you feel like it's become more and more, there's been more and more clarity each time those decisions have come down? I, I you know, I I think, you know, the, the Federal Circuit gets handed a, a shit sandwich and, and, and told to figure it all out. And, and I, my sense of the Federal Circuit is they, they want to avoid something that goes up to the Supreme Court for a fifth time. Uh, and, and that's why we keep getting these very incremental kind of decisions and a lot of, I agree with you, there's a lot of very clear disagreement um, between various judges and various panels. And I, and I think they're kind of disincentivized to, to um, come up with the one official decision because then that's can I ask you about something? You, you mentioned the the guidance from um, uh, from Michelle Lee. Uh, the The new patent director, the new patent office director, has said that he's going to be try to try to be a little bit more forward looking with the guidance. So, how far out ahead do you think they can get with the guidance? Uh, and, and you know, as people who, who who hold patents, how how far would you want the office to get out front if it's just going to wind up? Um, coming back to bite even in court. I, I guess, I mean, what, what do you mean in terms of how far out in front of, of what? Um, uh, the director, Andre Yanku said that, you know, they have to follow the, the law sure. from the Supreme Court and from the Federal Circuit when they're formulating guidance, but that there's some play in the joints and that and that they can get out ahead of it a little bit, uh, and, and I haven't had a chance to ask him exactly what he meant by that. But uh, I thought you were alluding to that too, with with Michelle Lee kind of filling the void. Well, I was just I my only point about that is that I mean she sure did get out ahead of it with her own agenda, right? And that that's the concern I have as a patent owner, and I hear from inventors every day, is that when there's no predictability in how patents are examined and how they're re-examined or, or dealt with PTAB. And when you have different standards, for example, use PTAB intentionally, um, as opposed to district court litigation, you get uneven results and you get um, unpredictability, which is one of the worst things you can have in, a, um, in, the, in the context of, a, of, of, of a, an innovation economy where people are trying to protect their intellectual capital. So I'm all for forward-looking guidance that coincides with the law. The problem is on 101, I mean, 
hell, you, you could say pretty much anything coincides with the law because depending on what panel you get at the federal circuit, you know, 101 is completely different on a Monday as opposed to a Tuesday. And so mm -hmm. I, that, 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 that's, I, I'm, I'm for the right kind of guidance. I think there should be an appropriate, um, I mean, quite frankly, 101, as it's currently interpreted by the patent office, and certainly as it's currently interpreted by the district courts and members of the, some members of the Kafka, um, is being used as a way to eliminate patents, um, you know, based sort of on a, you know, I know it's not invalid grounds, right? Where folks say, okay, there must be some 102 art or 103 art here. Um, and, you know, this is a very basic technology, so we're just going to kill it, right? As opposed to, you know, 101 being just sort of a, a very easy bar to overcome on your way to 102, on your way to 103, on your way to 112 or whatever. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's how I look at what the patent office guidance should be. And I think, look, Iancu has given some good signals to patent owners at this point. And I think that's, that's a, that's a, that's fine. That's a good thing. But, um, what, what we need is someone to reverse all the trends of the past, you know, eight to 10 years where the patent office has led the charge not to make the patent system stronger, not to make it stronger, but to actually, you know, make it make it weaker. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think to follow up on that, there's to to use the Yonkou's expression. There's a ton of play in those joints, right? Again, you saw Michelle Lee do that. I mean, she stacked. There's there's no question that she, under her leadership, panels were stacked in order to arrive at a certain outcome that was the outcome that the patent office wanted to see for a given case. And I think you've seen a bunch of certainly smoke, if not fire, around the issues of the PTAB's ruling on whether or not Indian tribes have... Native American. Native American. Native American Indian tribes or Native Indian American Native American we want to be, tribes? We want to be careful. Tribes with Native, Native Americans Americans in them? Correct. Whether or not they have sovereignty, uh, you know, in front of the PTAB, and then all of the hubbub back and forth about different judges at the PTAB being involved in that that aren't on the panel and whether or not that was really under their jurisdiction. And, and you know, all of that is controlled by the director. And it matters because of the amount of deference that the courts are required to give an administrative agency under the Administrative Procedures Act. APA, that's the APA. It's also the APA. Because that's the more politically correct terms. The Administrative Procedures Act is what it likes to be called. Well, you don't have to get mad. I, I was really surprised that they expanded that panel in the Native American tribes case right after the oil states argument. I mean, it was it was pretty clear that if there was one thing that Supreme Court was really not okay with was the PTAB. It was the stack panels, and uh, you know, then they went right ahead <laughs> and did it in that case and another couple of cases. I think right around the same time, I was. Really surprised that they did that. Scott, did you attend the oil very oral argument? Yes, I did. How 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 did you, as a person that was in the room, what did you um what did you take from that? Uh, I think uh, the the petitioner is not going to win, but but I think that, I think my hunch is it's going to be a lot like Quozo. The headline is going to be affirmed, but it's going to be you know, affirmed with strings attached. Uh, 
you know, with, with some language like no shenanigans, uh, and, and that that's then going to be applied to, uh, you know, perhaps tighten things up uh, at the PTAB. Well, I think if that happens, it'll just be maybe, more. Maybe. Right. Is Justice Sotomayor, well, she is. I, you know, I'd, I, let me suppose they said, for example, um, you know, PTAB proceeding is only constitutional if it's followed by a written uh, opinion from the Federal Circuit on Appeal. Uh, no Rule 36. I could just imagine, you know, just some things like that that, that might make it a little bit of a compromise type of ruling. Do you, do you think that some of the liberal justices like Sotomayor and Kagan are going to sign on to something like that? Or do you see this is like a, 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 a majority opinion with some concurrences in part? How do you see it playing out? Um, I, I see it as uh, a fairly close decision, something like 5 4 6 3. Uh, and with the majority opinion having to um, include some language like that to to bring their majority along, uh, you know, I, I of course it's always just tea leaf reading, but um, Justice Kennedy and Justice Alito both struck me as being uh, a little bit hostile to the petitioner, but it wasn't really entirely clear. Um, so I, I I think there could be a lot of um, horse trading going on. The fact that it's taking this long, um, you know, I think we can pretty much write off the idea that it's going to be a, a nine to nothing uh, anonymous opinion like some people thought. Do you think Justice Kennedy is going to resign or retire this year, rather? Uh, boy, I, I don't that I don't know. Uh, I. All I could say on that is, you know, it seems like the rumors come around every year, and 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 you know, they haven't happened yet. Well, what do you? What, what's your hunch? I I don't follow the court that closely, but I I think, um, you know, everything you hear, it seems like he he would be the um, the next uh, next one to go. Him Does or the Ginsburg. fact that he's five hundred years old have? Well, okay, Judge Ginsburg is, is <laughs> has been sick, but she yeah. I think she's waiting for a Democratic. Administration. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, that's that, that's interesting to hear from someone who's actually in the in the room. Yeah, no, that's good. I, you know, I, I think that's our, one of the first times I've heard it, someone say they thought it'd be close. Too, I've had a lot of folks say <laughs> seven to two, um, but that that's interesting. Five to four or something. Close six three. That's that's. Well, it would certainly be nice if, at a minimum, they were able to adjust the approach because. The levers. We've taken the uh, we've certainly taken the position on this esteemed IP podcast that uh, you know the PTAB has has just made a, a mess of the U.S. patent system, and I think you see those results played out. I believe we're now tied with Guyana, perhaps uh, for uh, the top. We're still in the top twenty. Could be. I don't know. I haven't checked. Well, well. What would be your, in in your view, the, the the best way to to fix PTAB if you know we started with the the starting point that we wanted some method for uh, fairly quick review of validity? If if they pulled PTAB into an Article Three court, uh, you know, put like twenty PTAB judges under an Article Three court, 
um, you know, would that solve part of the problem from your point of view? I think that's, I think the inclination that courts should decide this is exactly right. I mean, I, I've always thought that there was an inherent problem. I mean, with the PTAB, it's just, a, it's just crazy, right? Because it was set up to kill patents. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. Um, and it, you know, it's remarkable when you see companies that are built on the sole business model of filing IPRs that fail over and over again. Um, you know, it, 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 it's actually kind of ironic because that's such a low bar to hit for invalidating patents these days, but companies like Unified who fail over and over again. But um, on, uh, on, uh, on the article, article three courts, I think that's where it should be decided. I think there should be universal patent rules across all cases uh, and across all districts that, that folks have to comply with. I think there should be early discovery on validity and infringement. Um, I, I'm fine bifurcating damages in patent cases. I think that often makes sense. I think litigation is way too expensive. But, you know, in order for a property right to be taken, there really has to be, um, it, unless there's some glaring issue, um, that the patent office clearly made a mistake on. I think there has to be an Article Three court involved. So, um, but I don't think you need to roll the PTAB over. I mean, my God, those guys are good at killing patents, but it's not like they have any expert knowledge on um, you know, 102 or 103 that an Article Three court can't figure out. And when they can't figure it out, they appoint technical uh, advisors anyway in Article Three court. So I think you actually get better coverage there, but you just have to speed it up with, with patent rules that work. So you think it's more about rules than about uh, the number of judges available in district courts to to hear those cases? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, you know, everybody likes to ride the Eastern District of Texas as though, you know, it was some fail-safe for patent owners. Which, if you look at the statistics, it certainly wasn't. But one of the things that made that an effective venue <clears throat> was not that the plaintiff came in with some sense of assuredness that they were going to win. I mean, the statistics just don't support that. What it was, was a well-documented, well-enforced, relatively speedy way uh, to get to the material aspects of a patent case, because the Eastern District had local rules that it enforced stringently and that, you know, were clear and everyone understood. And it's not like the Eastern District had 10 times the number of judges any other district does. They just were more efficient and effective at, at managing it, and they developed some expertise. And, you know, again, folks became convinced that somehow the infamous patent troll was, you know, always going to go to the Eastern District and that somehow there was, you know, I don't know, I guess a conspiracy between patent trolls and Eastern District judges to, uh, you know, Yeah, but that was all, that was all, just, that was all, that's all propaganda, I think. Crap. When you look at when you look at it, you can very easily when you file a complaint for patent infringement, you shouldn't. There should be claim charts. There should be data rooms with information about what you think the infringement is. I mean that that should all be done. I mean that's certainly what we tell our clients to do. Um, there's just not enough transparency going into the litigation process, and actually lends itself towards something else, right? It lends itself towards uh, being more obscure. Um, that, that's just by the nature of litigation. But require full disclosures of infringement positions at the outset, limited discovery on that point, require within two months of getting infringement positions, full disclosures of invalidity positions, i.e. prior art, um, allow for early summary judgment, judgment motions on 102, 103, which a court can figure out very quickly. And if a court needs to appoint a special master, 
that both parties pay for, then a court does that. And then you move on to, if, if you overcome those hurdles, you move on to the damages portion. But it, it should be, these patent cases, I mean, look, this is not, um, you know, this, this is not very complicated uh, in terms of setting forward, setting forth a, a procedure for how you, uh, how, how a, cat, a patent case unfolds, right? And so it's all about disclosure. It's all about prompt timing. And quite frankly, that's something that will result in more and more licensing or more patents being invalidated by the courts and not licensed. But that's that's what you need to do. And the, the patent office certainly shouldn't be doing anything more than pre-grant proceedings. How about if those early summary judgment motions on invalidity were followed by uh, a bench trial? Bench trial on what? Weren't for them, the summary judgment. Bench trial on validity. I'm sorry, bench trial on what? On validity to get you know to get validity out of the way early on. I'm I'm fine with that. I mean I I don't whether it's summary judgment or whether it's a I mean you you don't want to make it so, um, you you don't want to have you don't want to sort of string it out right. So if you have really good 102 or 103 art, why can't you what what do you need a bench trial for right? You can just you can just brief that. Um, and and quite frankly, if you lose on summary judgment, you should just be that, that they should be precluded from bringing it up again. Um, but I mean, if there's some reason to have testimony as part of a summary judgment proceeding, I'm fine with having the court hear it in, in live in a live hearing. I mean, I, I don't that to me is just a, a question that the court can answer. But I think at the end of the day, if you set a schedule like EDTX does and you stick to it, then it, it would help you know, clear more cases out of the dockets, it would give much more predictability. And it would take away from, you know, having this PTAB decide um, validity issues using stacked panels and, and you know, the, these weird. Yeah, um, you're just politicizing, you're just politicizing the whole concept of patentability. And that, I mean, that just by definition should not happen. I mean, a patent is either valid or invalid under the law not valid or invalid depending on someone's opinion about the technology that is what is what happens at the PTAB. well i mean i think you're right that they answer to the uh director to the, you know, the chief judge who answers to the director well that's right and that's that's a political appointee um, so you know you're playing politics yeah but then you know they do have that argument that um you know they're looking to see if they made a mistake when they you think they make that many mistakes first time I mean, they should. Uh, the I, I, well, I, I think maybe mistake is actually the wrong word, but I think they uh, don't have all the information that uh, an examination proceeding that they do at uh, post And that, that, that to me is really the problem that you uh, one proceeding is not adversary and the other one is. And you're always going to get different outcomes. That's something uh, Iancu said that I think is interesting. He wants to narrow the gap between art that's before the examiners and before the courts and the PTAB. And if there's a way to do that, it seems like that would help a lot. Well, I mean, if that's the rule, then what we should do is we should skip pre-grant the regular examination and we should go right to an adversarial proceeding, right? I mean, patent owners pay tens of thousands of dollars to get a patent. And then, you know, maybe what should happen is it should just go right into the PTAB for review. If, 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 the, if the process is that jacked up, 
How about if they got rid of IPRs and, uh, and, and, and expanded the deadline for PGRs to, you know, two or three years? Uh, and so then there'd be that two to three year window, but then after that point, you'd, you'd know that your patent is good. Oh, yeah. I mean, Europe does nine months. I don't know why we can't do nine months, but. I mean, I think, I think that would make sense. Yeah. I'd sign on for that right now. As would I. So, Scott, why don't you make a prediction for us on uh, something? What do you think, David? Well, I think, what, what do you think the big story is going to be at the end of 2018 in the uh, in the patent space? Oh, boy. What's the big uh, story going to be? Um, pull up the we'll, crystal ball. Yeah. Will it revolve around water balloons? Um, <laughs> Uh, it could. Uh, no, no. I think I, I, I think uh, Josh Malone and uh, Zuru uh, have that one pretty well in hand now. Uh, I think uh, tribal immunity is going to come back onto the radar screen in a big way. Uh, I, I've, you know, where the federal circuit's going to decide that over the summer, uh, Supreme Court might uh, be deciding a cert petition uh, at the end of the year, and uh, I'll, I'll bet that we're all talking about that again. In the fall. Maybe it'll, we can combine the two and maybe there'll be immunity for anyone with a water balloon. I'd like <laughs> to see that happen. Water balloons are a great American tradition, so I'd like to see that happen. I, you know, I don't know. We'll see. 2018 is a lot, lot, lot of 2018 yet to come. So one of the things you may not be aware of, Scott, but we'll certainly make you aware of it now, is that by, by virtue of having been our guest here on IP Frequently, you get a lifetime supply of rice aroni. And so we'll be awesome. sending it. San down. Francisco treat. You're right. Exactly. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It is the, gift the other thing we, 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 if you were here today at the headquarters, we have a um, big pizza and cake um, uh, dinner for my colleague's 60th birthday. So we're very excited. They were one. We didn't know that he'd make it this far, but we're very excited for him to be turning 60 this week. And we've got cake here and we've got pizza. Well, we're not going to great party. And and so I look forward to... But for those to, of you on the live stream, you'll be able to watch us do the big right, celebration. eat the cake. And I look forward to catching up with David, who doesn't look it, but is 85 years old. And we'll, uh, we can discuss that on a uh, on a future podcast. So, again, Scott, yeah, we appreciate up the, it. Cue up the laugh track for that one. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you for um, having me on your podcast. I appreciate it. At the same level. Yeah, no, I, I get it. So, All right, bud. Hey, we Scott, appreciate we're, you haven't been on. We're thankful you were on. Thanks, bud. Talk with you later. Right, take care. And there you have it. Scott, again, if you're listening, we appreciate having you on. We appreciate the opinions. And uh, Well, of course he's listening. He's, right. he's, he's on the line. Well, no, we've already hung up with him. He's no longer on the line. Well, where was he listening then? He might be listening to the podcast now. Oh, well, I gotcha. He could be on the live stream. Oh, all right. Yeah. And in any case, whether he's listening or not, we certainly appreciated having him on, appreciated his opinions on some of the goings-on in the IP legal space. And uh, anything else you've got on your side of the table, as it were? There you have it. That's it? Just there you have it? That's it. That's it. Okay. There it. Well, there, there, there it is, I guess. So we'll look forward to seeing you next time on another episode of IP Frequently.